And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Amen. Okay, so I'm really excited about today. We're doing something a little bit different, something we've never done here at Hope Culture Church. We are doing seven-minute Sunday, and so what we're going to do is we have asked five different communicators from in our church family to come up and share a seven-minute message, and so you are going to get to hear a word that each of them prayed over, they heard from God, they're all different, all unique from all different passages in the Bible, and we're going to get to hear five messages this morning. And so I hope that you're ready. I hope that you get out your notebook, you get out your Bible. I hope that you that you give some amens because listen, as communicators, like it is everything when the audience is engaged and listening. And so would you do that for our communicators this morning? Be present. Give them some amens. Yes, Lord. Praise Jesus. Okay, we are going to go ahead and invite up our five different communicators. So if you would join us on this stage, would you clap for them, please? We're so excited to hear what God has to say through them this morning. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. What Abigail was saying is so true. A little smile goes a long way. A little nod. You know, just stay engaged. We know you're tired. You know, give them that encouragement. Oh, that's so good. Say it loud so that they can hear you. Yes. It'll encourage them. There's going to be um, a timer on the screen. So when it gets down to like the last second, let's all count down. Five. No, I'm just kidding. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't stress them out. They're going to have grace, seven minutes either. But it will be great. It's going to be so good. Okay. Would you introduce our first speaker? Yeah. Well, really quick before we do. Yes. Um, I just believe that one of them at yeah. least has a word that's going to encourage you. None of them just wrote back immediately and said, this is my passage because I love it so much. They were just, they were all prayerful about it. Maybe it is something that resonated with them or is, a, you know, a passage that's meant a lot to them. And yeah. I just think one of these messages or maybe a couple of them are really going to speak to you. So lean in yeah. uh, and take notes and let's yeah. see what God does. Yeah. All right. Our first speaker, we're going to give it up. We're going to honor them, you know, like clap for them when I announce them, maybe even stand up, whatever you want to do. But our first one is Nehemiah Heckler. Hey, thank you, thank you. When does, when does my timer start? Does it already start? All right, here it is. All right, let's go. All right, I get to speak first because uh, I'm talking about seeking Jesus first in his kingdom. So it's clever that you guys made me go first. It was very clever of you guys. Oh, I'm so glad that I get to talk to this because about this because this is the foundation that me personally have tried to spend my whole life on. Um, it's important to me. It's something that I work on every day. I don't have it all together. Um, we get distracted by things. I just had a you know a one year old, um, zero year old, <laughs> uh, literally like a week a week ago. Got had my my second baby, and it's just like so. There's things that come up, right? And um, there's yeah, there's all these things that come up. But God's grace and what God has for all of us is so important, and that's why I seek Jesus every single day. Um, my, my verse comes from Matthew 6, It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This verse has always been important to me because every time I seek him, his outcome is so much better than what I have for myself. Why do I always try to figure out every single thing when I have the creator of the universe on my side speaking it to me? I get to have that relationship. I get to have that time to talk with him. I used to think, man, if I have all this time with Jesus and I'm like always seeking him, he's going to have all these hard things for me to do. I'm going to have to go to missions. I'm going to have to give up my job. I'm going to have to give up all these things. And that's not how God has it for us. When we have a relationship, he wants it to be a safe space and a place that he can talk to us. 
I don't have, I don't talk to my three-year-old son and I'm like, all right, time to do the, time to do the trash. It's time to go, time to do the dishes. It's time to do all these things. My relationship with my son is the same way our father has a relationship with us. He's not gonna have you do all these crazy things right from the beginning. You're young, you're starting out. Some of you are starting out. Yeah, one step at a time. It's, it's the fact that he wants a relationship, he wants you to know that he loves you, that he cares about you, that he's for you. It's the same conversation that I have with my son every day. So don't feel uncomfortable. There's a peace. There's a peace knowing that God's plan is better than your own. And even when you feel like he's not working, even when you feel he's not there, he is. He's working. Let me give you a story about it real quick. Uh, I remember I was talking, talking to God. I was just seeking him about two weeks ago. And I was like, God, I really want to speak to youth. Like, I really want a chance and an opportunity to talk about Jesus with, with youth, youth specifically. And that was two weeks ago. This week, um, I was talking with God, and I was just spending time, and I was just having a relationship with him. And uh, as soon as I come off, off from the walk, literally, I get an email from a former student that goes to my former high school, I should say. He's a student now, and he wants me to come and speak at his outreach um, and talk about God with, with students that have never heard. And I talked about that two weeks ago, but it was because I kept seeking Jesus even it wasn't because it was just a wish list. It was because I wanted to know him, and I knew that he had a plan. So he was working, even when, even though it wasn't on my timing. Um, I want to leave you with one of these main points. This is one I wrote down. So I want to really want to just say it straight from here. I don't seek his kingdom because I have a long wish list. I seek him because I want to know every ounce of purpose he has for me. I feel like if we truly knew how much Jesus loved us, we would have no problem loving ourselves. Um, here are some of the ways, here are some of the ways, just two, I'm just going to give you two, two ways on how to seek him and some of the ways that have worked for me. They're very simple. The first one is prayer. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be on your knees, crying out, or in a closet. It could be just on your drive to work. It could be just you're doing the dishes. It could be you're just, you're just out. Prayer, talking to God, wanting to know him. I think a lot of times we think like Christianity is like Amazon Prime, where you like order it at 8 a.m. and you like hope that it comes to your doorstep at 3. No, this is like something that we have to like work on. It's going to happen. Uh, God, God wants to bless his children. God wants you to be there. But I think it all starts with relationship. Number two is worship. I feel this one specifically here on Sundays. Wasn't worship awesome? Worship was great today. And worship, per, worship personally for me, especially being a musician, um, and writing songs. Like, this is one of the ways that I connect truly with Jesus. I heard a song yesterday where it said, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation, he's never let me down. I had to get a rhyme in there. I'm a rapper. I had to, had to, had to, had to, had to do that for you guys. Um, but I felt that yes. And that song and that worship, it got me closer to him. And it carried, that, that's, that uh, very saying carried, through, carried me throughout my day. I wholeheartedly believe that God was proving to me when I was telling you that story earlier, that even when, he, even when I don't feel like he's working, he is. I think it's no coincidence that this opportunity happened the moment after I was seeking his kingdom. I want to encourage you guys to seek him, even if it's only a couple minutes, couple minutes each day. Seek him when you don't feel he's there. Seek him when you're in a good time. Seek him in a bad time. He's a good God, and he wants the best for his children. And here's a really big thing that I had to learn is that there's no shame if you miss it. There's no shame if you haven't talked to him in a while. He, there's no shame if you're like, oh, I didn't do enough for, for you, or I don't deserve your grace, or I don't deserve your, your... He just wants you to seek. 
That's all he wants you to do, and then he'll take care of the rest. He'll handle the rest for you. He is a good God. I'll leave you with this. If we, do, if we do our part to make our relationship with God our highest priority, he will do his part to provide our every need. And that's something we can count on. I hope you guys are encouraged today and hope you continue to seek his kingdom. Yes. <laughs> One minute. Amen. With a minute to spare. Let's go. He's making, he's making our job easy. We didn't have to come interrupt him or anything, so that's great. Uh, he did so good. I love that. My reminder from that, my takeaway from that was just like, don't seek the wrong thing. Because so often we get distracted and God's like, focus on the right thing. I got the rest. That's so good. Thanks, Nehemiah. Our next one, give it up. Warm welcome, Courtney. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. I'm a little less sleep this morning. Um, I'm honored to be standing here when Pastor Abigail and Dan invited me up here. Um, I was a bit nervous and also excited, and I thought, okay, I'm going to trust that excited part of myself, trust that, um, that God has something to do in this moment, and so I'm moving forward. Here I am, trusting in God, and so that's kind of where my my uh, talk today is going to be about is trusting in our good shepherd. I'm going to be in Psalms 23 and in John 10 today. Um, so trusting, this is something that's kind of hard for me to do generally. Um, maybe it's because that on some level I don't fully trust myself. Maybe we can relate to that. Um, maybe some it's like deep disappointments in life that have come about. Just life is rough, right? Um, and maybe it's just my bent towards needing control. I think that that's something that we as human beings are bent towards naturally. Um, but God wants us to trust in him. So the idea of trusting has often been hard for me in the past um, couple of years through a long journey of infertility. Um, that trust in God has waned in and out, right? Um, so I'd like to talk to you guys about how my heavenly father, your heavenly father, is shoring up our trust in him through the testimony of his people and the testimony of his son. So um, let's dip into Psalm 23 a little bit here. Um, this verse was written by a young David uh, before he was king. Uh, he was likely per being pursued by a King Saul at this time who wanted to murder him. So <laughs> he was hiding out. He was a fugitive. He was hungry. He was scared. Um, and so he's calling out for God in praise and worship and probably just a good reminder to himself of who he knows God to be in the drought of his life at the moment. So um, here he goes. He says, this is the amplified version. So if you're looking it up, it may be a little longer than you're expected. Um, so he says, this is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd to feed, to guide, and to shield me. I shall not want. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still and quiet waters. He refreshes and restores my soul, my life. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the sunless valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod to protect and your staff to guide. They comfort and console me. <laughs> That's great, right? This imagery of God as the shepherd, as his good shepherd, um, is really profound. And David knew 
intimately what it meant to be a shepherd because he was one in his youth. Um, he knew the sacrifice. He knew the commitment. He knew the consistency that it took to watch over a flock of sheep. And um, David is lifting up his belief in prayer and praise, trusting in God's provision and care. He's trusting. Um, so the Lord is my shepherd because he knows me, right? Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah. So in John 10, if we can go there, uh, Jesus is talking about him being the shepherd, and he's realizing David's prayer here. Um, he's actually speaking to some, some Pharisees in this moment. Um, he's talking about, and this is right after he healed a blind man, and the Pharisees are questioning his, his power here. And Jesus is testifying that he is the good shepherd, and that all who came before him were actually thieves or hired hands. They were lacking the commitment to his flock. Um, they weren't able to sacrifice like he did. They weren't able to go after the wolves when they came, but rather they ran away. And so Jesus is here, and he's coming after the wolf, right? He, um, let's see here. So Jesus says to the Pharisees here in John 10, verses 2, he says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, the protector and the provider to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by their name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus knows his flock intimately. He knows each of us intimately. He calls us by our name, and he leads us to green pastures in clear waters, um, though, even though he doesn't promise us that all the time, we may still walk in the valley of darkness, right? Um, life is still hard, <laughs> but he is there to guide us through that sunless valley, through the evils of this world, because it is broken. This world is broken. Um, he is with us to protect, to guide, and to comfort us. This truth, these characteristics of God, is they're something that we have to hold on tight to because it's so easy to let them just slip away. It's too easy, actually, to fall into the distrust of his goodness, um, to toy around with that idea that maybe it doesn't really matter to God what I'm going through or, or you know, maybe, maybe I can just handle this myself, right? Um, our testimony is that we need to follow him, and that's where he actually moves the most in our lives. Um, those stories of feeling discouraged, and instead of cho choosing joy and trusting in Jesus, we can slip into sadness or doubt. But God, he will pursue us in those moments, right? He does pursue you. He sweetly calls you home. He, can, he will take care of you. Um, yeah, trusting is a choice, though. God wants us to be with him, but the enemy wants us to be isolated. So trusting is a choice. We have to choose to be with him. 
God will provide, he will protect, he will guide us because he knows us. And he calls us each by name. He pursues us like the sheep in the flock, even when we go astray. And so I just want to lift everybody up. Like, this is a moment where we can move towards him. Yeah. He is our good shepherd. Thank you all. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Courtney. What a word. That was a word for somebody. Keep trusting, keep walking with Jesus through the valley. What an encouragement. Thank you for that, Courtney. I'm really excited to now introduce our next speaker. Would you give it up for Aubrey Flickema? Okay. So I'm really excited to share today about a woman in scripture. And I need to pull my notes up really quick because it canceled out. (laughs) Um... And this passage, it's funny because God has been keep, um, bringing me to this passage for months now, actually, in my um, like personal devotion time. So when um, Pastor Dan and Abigail asked me to do this, I was you know, praying about it, and God just kept bringing me back to this, like he'd been calling me back to it. And so today, um, I want to share with you this passage in scripture. Um, it's a little weird, um, but I love weird things and weird passages, and I think God does too, so he's a little weird too. So um, I want to introduce you to a woman named Hagar, Hagar, Um, not Hagrid, Hagar, (laughs) in case anybody's wondering. Um, Okay, so we we meet Hagar in Genesis 16, and we're introduced to her as an Egyptian woman who was enslaved by Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Sarai. Um, She's her maidservant. So I want to give you a little bit of context before we jump in. Scripture tells us that while Abraham and Sarah were in their old age, God appears to them, and um, or God appears to Abraham, and he promises him a son, and he tells him that he's going to make a great nation out of this son. And this nation is, spoiler alert, who knows who this great nation is? Israel. I hope we know that. Um, so God makes this promise. Abraham tells Sarah, and Sarah doesn't believe him. Sarah's like, you're lying. <laughs> I, I'm old, and you're old. This isn't happening. Um, and so Sarah is stubborn, and she decides she is going to take matters into her own hands. And she has this maidservant, Hagar, and she says to Abraham, here, take Hagar, and you can sleep with her, and you can have a child and that child will become the um, person who is a great nation, right? Becomes the great nation of Israel. Um, and so it works. And neither Hagar or Sarah um, are super happy about it. They're, they're both, like, mad. <laughs> and so scripture tells us that Sarah begins mistreating Hagar really harshly. And um, that while she's pregnant because of this, she runs into the wilderness. She runs away. And it's here where we really get acquainted with Hagar and where Hagar gets acquainted with God. So I want to go ahead and read um, Genesis 16, starting in verse 7. And it tells us, The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. We're going to jump to verse 13. And verse 13 tells us, thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, 
You are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So where I want to focus today is on that name that Hagar gives to God, which appears here. And in Hebrew, it is El Roy or the God who sees me. And what's really cool, what I actually found out this week um, about this name is that it doesn't show up anywhere else in scripture. This is it. Um, and so I, I think it's really neat um, that Hagar has her own special name for God, especially considering who she is and like what scripture tells us about her. And I think that's significant because I believe it's pointing to something that God wants us to see. And that's what I want to unpack today. So to unpack that, I want to go back to verse 8, where God finds Hagar in the wilderness. Hagar is probably full of emotions right now. First of all, she's pregnant. She knows it. She's also enslaved. So she owns no property. She has no money. She has no food and no family or friends anywhere nearby that can help her. So when uh, scripture tells us she flees into the wilderness, I can only imagine what's been happening to make her make that choice. Like it's, she's, it's death. That's what she's chosen. Um, she has no meaningful way to survive. She's a pregnant woman in a foreign land with no protection, and it's dangerous. So when God asks her this question, where have you been and where are you going? I think it's almost ironic, right? It's a little ironic. But I don't think that God is asking Hagar about her geographical location right now. Like, he's not like, hey, girl, you know, why'd you turn your location services off? You dropped off, find my friends, right? That's not what he's saying. I think God's making a statement. I think God is telling Hagar, I've seen where you've been. So to make it a little bit personal, um, some of you know that when my son Finn was born, he was born in distress, and he was transported immediately to the NICU. He was not doing well, and he required significant medical intervention to survive. Um, I didn't get to hold my son until he was six days old because of this. And I remember standing at his bedside, watching him cry, being unable to hold him and like feeling the urge in my body, like it's tangible to me, remembering that, to hold him, to pick him up, to respond to him. And I don't know that I've ever felt more broken or more lost in those first few days. I felt like I was drowning. Like every time I thought I might come up for air, something deep and dark kept pulling me down. I was so hopeless and I was unable to see beyond that point. In my head, the situation I was in was where I lived. And at the time, there was a woman who I knew who had recently been through something similar. And every day, she would text me. And I wouldn't respond, but she texted me every day anyway. And she would say things like, hi, I prayed for you today in my quiet time. Or, hey, mama, drink your water. You know, you need to take care of you too. And um, it... So she had seen where I was. She had been there, right? She had seen where I was. And when I think about that, it makes me think of this moment, moment Hagar has with God. See, Hagar only knows where she's been. She only knows her present reality. And when you're struggling through something difficult like that, your mind can only exist in that space. But that's why I love uh, the second part of that question that God asks Hagar. And the second part of that question is, where are you going because I don't think that Hagar knows. She can't see past the circumstances of her current situation. But God knows. God knows where Hagar is going. And God gives Hagar a vision for her future in the midst of her desperation. And the good news is that this vision is so much greater than the scripture even tells us here. It's so much greater than what Hagar will ever know in her lifetime. See, what gets me so excited about this passage is that I think it gives us a little glimpse into the gospel 
God's plan doesn't stop with Abraham or Isaac or David later on down the line. The story ends with Jesus. It ends with Jesus, right? God's son who ultimately makes a way for us to escape the wilderness of sin and death and live eternally in communion with him. God saw where Hagar had been. God saw where Hagar was going. And God sees you in a special way too. So if we skip to the New Testament, we're skipping like a lot of pages of the Bible here um, to Colossians where Paul is speaking um, to the church there about a new li- what new, a new life as a Christian looks like. Um, he tells us in Colossians 3, 3 through 4. It says, for you died to this life and your life is your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. So I'm going to illustrate this to you in a way that's been illustrated to me, and I'm going to use my friend right here. So um, I'm going to describe it to you. Um, the person who showed me this like actually made someone do this, but I'll describe it. So let's say that I am you, and, or well... Let me look at my notes here because I got to make sure I get it right. Okay. So let's say, yeah, that I'm you and Jen here is Jesus. Okay. So yeah, congratulations. (laughs) Uh, She's empowered by the same spirit that Jesus was empowered by. So I'm not saying she's Jesus, but like maybe can I get an amen for that? Um, Yes. So if I stand, if she's Jesus and, and I'm you, if I stand behind her and you're God, okay, If you're looking at us, what do you see? What do you have to look at to look at me? Jesus. That's right. Jesus. So this is so significant to me because God, Scripture tells us that God sees you through the image of his beloved perfect son who he's raised from the dead. So it means that every time I start to lose sight of what a future in Christ means, every time I devalue myself, every time I enter into a space of desperation or hopelessness, God still sees me through the vision of his perfect son. It doesn't change his vision for me or or it doesn't change his vision of me or for me. God saw Hagar and it changed everything for you. So I want to close with this question. Uh, and, and this is the question, and I want to ask you, if you truly believed that God saw you the way scripture tells us he sees you, then how might you live differently? Because I think there's someone in this room, maybe multiple people, I've been this person, maybe I'm this person right now, who knows, um, who, who is allowing their image of themselves to dictate their obedience to God. I think there's someone in this room who isn't fully living into the freedom that Jesus has for them because the present dominant thought in their mind is, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not loud enough. I'm not put whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not whatever enough, right? But here's the thing. The goodness of the good news of Jesus is that you don't have to be because Jesus is. Jesus is enough. God sees you and your future and your past through the image of his beloved son. So again, I want to ask you, how might that change you? God saw Hagar and it gave her a vision of hope when all she saw was death. So I'll ask you again, how might it change you? Thanks, Aubrey.
God sees you. He knows your whole story and loves you and sees you through Christ. All right, let's give it up. Our next speaker, Mr. Chris Kranz. All right, God put this on my heart in this Easter season, and I want to examine our posture or our intentionality of our attitude towards Jesus. To do that, I'm going to look at Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, uh, to get an understanding of this model of posture. Three times Mary is introduced in Scripture in the, New, in the New Testament as having encounters with Jesus. And in each of these encounters, we see her in the same posture at Jesus' feet. Gee, uh, Mary grew as I looked at each of these three postures. She grew from seeker to devoted follower to full worshiper, all in to Jesus. There was something internal to Mary that was telegraphing to her posture, this inner attitude of worship, seeker, and devoted follower. So let's work backwards in these three encounters. I want to first go to John 12. It says, six days before the Passover ceremonies began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man who had raised, he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor, and Martha served, and Lazarus was at table with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance. Mary was all in in that act of worship. She spent everything. She spent financially on that extravagant perfume. She spent her reputation for a woman to let down her hair in public was unheard of to wipe Jesus' feet. She spent her status. She was as if a servant at the feet of, a, of their Lord. We could call her act of worship as extravagant, as reckless, as, a, as a, an abandoned adoration of her Lord. Now, me and my deepest desire would love to have that same attitude that Mary is representing. But in honesty to myself and full disclosure to you, I think my journey, for the most part, is quite ordinary. It nowhere comes near the ascent of Mary's. So how did Mary get to that place of ultimate adoration of her Lord? Well, let's stay, take one more step back to the second encounter that she has. And it was just a short time before her last encounter. Jesus was called to Bethany, to the home of, of Mary and Martha, because Lazarus was, lazy, was gravely ill. And Jesus arrived, but too late. Lazarus was dead. So Jesus, outside of Bethany, summons Mary to her, and Mary comes away from her mourners. And we read in John 11 that when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. So we see again Mary in a posture before Jesus at his feet. A posture of grief, a posture of devotion, of knowing that Jesus could have done something if he was there, but still possibly could do something. 
Mary had a faith that went beyond her understanding of the own, her own realities. Like me, many of you have been in that similar place, whether it be of grief or of sorrow, of pain, of confusion, of anger, or of numbness. You find yourself possibly even today in that sense of, of wanting or needing to fall, fall at Jesus' feet. But perhaps if we take a look at the first encounter that Mary had with Jesus, we could see that maybe this was the gateway experience to her ultimate complete devotion and worship to her Lord. Again, it was at Mary's house in a dinner party. And we see that Jesus in that dinner party was brought into the conversation as Martha, Mary's sister, says, talk to my sister. She's not pulling her weight. And Jesus very gently confronts Martha and in that, in that same confrontation points to Mary. We read in uh, Luke chapter 10 that Jesus says to Martha, My dear Martha, you're so upset over all these details, but there's really only one thing worthy of being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and I won't take that away from her. What was that one thing that, Mary, that, that Jesus was discovering in Mary? Well, we read just before this passage that her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet again, listening to what Jesus taught. So we see Martha, Mary in this posture three times. We might call this as Mary's attentiveness or attention, that Jesus called out the one thing, and it was that attention or respect. Now, in that scene in the house, both Mary and Martha were respecting Jesus. Martha, in her service to Jesus and in serving the dinner to the other guests, was respecting Jesus in a very physical way. However, the one thing that Mary found that Jesus commended was the spiritual attentiveness that Mary was having to Jesus in that moment. That there was a respect for the, the reality of what was going on. So Mary recognized um, this thing that Jesus was. And in fact, Jesus, she saw perhaps as the real host of that meeting, that Jesus was serving a spiritual food that far outweighed and surpassed the physical food that was sitting on Mary's table. And it was that need that perhaps Mary remembered the story of another woman, a woman at the well, where Jesus told that woman that he has a living water that surpasses any water that would come from that well, a water that will forever slake the thirst. And that there is a food Jesus told to his disciples that they know not, that they know not of, that they could be um, eating from. So in this season of Easter, I pray that we can have that one thing. And in fact, as you know, any of you know me, I'm not much of an actor. But at, during worship, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was asking me to, to end it this way. That what I want to challenge you is to challenge you in your own posture of attentiveness. Are you willing to kneel before Jesus in your attentiveness and to ask 
for, whether it's Mary as the ultimate worshiper or Mary as the devoted follower as you find yourself in need, or Mary in the seeker. I think we all can find ourselves in that seeking role, looking at the distractions of life that are behind, before us, and to understand that Jesus is there wanting to receive us and to take us in our need and to receive the worship that we have to give. So in this season of, of Easter, I pray that you could find those eyes of your heart to attend to Jesus, to attend to your soul, and to know that, that Jesus in that attention is going to be serving your needs. Praise God. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate that. What a good reminder to have the posture of Mary. I was really touched by that. I hope that you were too. I hope you're taking notes. I'm up here taking notes. It's all so good. And we have one more speaker. I'm going to introduce our last one, Jen Oxford. Give it up for Jen. Good morning. Well, in my life, I've definitely had a lot of really big ups and downs. Um, when I was younger, my parents got divorced. And so for any of you who've gone through a divorce or your parents have gone through a divorce, you know that that just has a ton of ripples in your life. Um, when I was in my 20s, I actually had a pretty serious like health issue that really affected my whole life. Um, I mean, I've lost jobs because of company takeovers. I've had my heart broken. Um, you know, I feel like I've had a lot of ups and downs. And so I think because of those ups and downs, I've really felt like I can face anything. And like I was really, really strong. And I think that's why, um, because I was so able to face big things, that once, once, once something started to come that was really small, I didn't really see anxiety coming in my life. And I didn't really know what it was at first, actually. It was just that I didn't really feel like myself. I was not really like energetic. I wasn't excited. I would wake up and just feel kind of like, what's wrong with me? I just felt like I spent most of my time thinking about myself and not like in a like, oh, look at me, but like, what's wrong with you? Like, how, when are you going to feel better? Almost like shaming myself a little bit because it was just so confusing what was going on. Um, I always thought, when am I going to get back to normal? Um, I even felt anxious hanging out with family and friends that I had known a really long time. It was a new thing for me. But in hindsight, I can see that it didn't really come out of nowhere. And actually, it came from kind of a culmination of a lot of things that were going on in my life over the past couple years. Just to name a couple, uh, we all just came out of a pandemic where we were masked in seclusion. Um, there was a lot of political things going on and rage and human rights things that really got us activated and also numb, really. You didn't know how to respond. Um, I had a family member who was struggling with mental illness. That was really hard. Um, Jesse and I moved out of our home of 16 years. We also decided at the same time it would be a really good idea to move our business. Um, and that was crazy. And in doing so, we became landlords, something no one ever wants to do. Um, and so we had a bunch of things going on in our life. It all makes sense now that I can kind of see it in the rearview mirror. But going through it every day, um, it was really nearly more than I could bear. Literally every day was a struggle. And when I'm asked how I've gotten through that and how I continue to get through it, because anxiety continues to come back, um, I really have to give all the credit to God. Um, when I was a young Christian reading through the Bible, I came across this verse that really I have clung to ever since. And it's Second Chronicles 20, 12. 
It is, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And it resonates with me now as much as it did then because it's so honest. God, I have no idea what to do. I'm in a situation I can't get out of. I can't find anything that helps me or no one that helps me. I'm confused. I'm distraught. I feel like I'm a little crazy. Have you been there? Um, I'm sad. I'm mad. I'm tired. Um, But I'm also clear, God, that I can't do anything for myself. Maybe you have been there too. I love the honesty of it. God, I know not what to do. But I love that the verse then steps into trust. Once I admit, God, I don't know what to do, it says, but my eyes are on you. It's so comforting to me because putting my eyes on God is something that I I can do. That's something I actually can do. It might be the one thing. I can't do much, but I can look to him. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay, so sometimes, though, in my time of need, I also do start to wonder, like, maybe my struggles are too small for God. Maybe this is, he should be focusing on some bigger things, right? There's, like, world hunger. There's, like, war, trafficking, um, murder. I mean, there's a lot of things that he could be focusing on. And when I start to have that, like, negative voice asking myself, like, maybe he should be focusing on other things. Um, There's another story from Scripture that kind of helps me combat that. It's from Matthew 8, 1 through 3. It's a story of Jesus, and it says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean, and immediately he was cleansed. I love this verse because it reminds me of how personal God is. In the midst of a large crowd, I mean, he was in the busiest time of his ministry. There were a lot of people with needs. He focused on the one person who looked to him, looked him in the eye, and asked. And I love this story because it reminds me that not only is God powerful enough, because he does heal him, but did you catch the word in there that he's also willing? That word really gets me. God is willing. And honestly, when I cry out to God, when I start to have that negative voice like, maybe this is too small, um, I actually have a practice of making myself say out loud, God, are you willing? Um, And every time I imagine Jesus responding, I am willing. It just touches, touches me. So I think perhaps more, a more important attribute of God is not just that he's powerful enough, because he is, but I think it's that he's also willing. He's willing to listen. He's willing to answer. He's willing to join us, to love us, to forgive us, to understand us. Sometimes I don't feel understood even by myself, but he does that. He's willing to fill in the blank, whatever you need. He is willing. So life continues to bring me struggles, stress, and anxiety. I think that's a constant part of being human. Um, But the other constant that I've found is that God is good. It is Jesus who gives us that hope. When we don't know what to do, he invites us to cast our eyes on him. And a final verse I'll leave you with, which I think summarizes it all. Because I don't know what you're going through or what you've brought in today. But 1 Peter 5 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, 
for he cares about you. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. So as a fellow sufferer of stress, anxiety, and daily struggles, um, trying to handle things as they come my way, I just want to encourage you that you're not alone, that God is close, he is able, and he is willing. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com slash give. We hope you have a great week.